I'm so glad for the universal law that we all know that if a husband and wife preach one week after the other, you add the length of the sermons together, divided in two, and that's what each week is. Because last week was very punchy. And I'm looking at four chapters today. Just warning you. I've got a feeling it's a little bit longer than last week. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we so appreciate it. It's... Um, living and active, and it's here to change us, transform us, challenge and encourage us. And so we pray you'd have your way in our hearts and minds today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We spoke a few weeks ago about the importance of a little screw in a pair of glasses. Anyone remember that? The linchpin. Now, although that screw is absolutely essential, would you agree, without the lenses... The screw's not much. Anyone experienced that joy of uh, an optometrist giving you the right lenses? And you, yeah, and you put them on and you want to say, I can see, I can see. The world is so clear. The world does look far better through the right lenses. Today we begin a new series. It's always an exciting day. And we're in 1 Corinthians. We've entitled this message, Gospel Lens Living. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul suggests everything makes more sense when viewed through the lens of the gospel. Whether it's how we treat people, um, issues about sex, uh, all sorts of other behavioral um, issues that we're challenged with as Christians, everything makes more sense when viewed through the lens of the gospel. So first of all, what do we mean by gospel lens living? What is the gospel? Well, I wrote down um, what I think is a, a good definition of it up here. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' perfect life and perfect death in our place on the cross. The gospel is the true story grounded in history 2,000 years ago of God walking around and amongst us as human And it's the marvellous reality that this Jesus actually rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside every believer. That is the gospel. Now, this gospel can be exclusively about sin management. And by that, I mean that gospel can mean you put your faith in what Christ has done and we know that we are forgiven and will go to heaven when we die. We'll live on the new earth. So it can be about managing our sin. But the gospel of the kingdom, as the gospel is referred to in the New Testament, is more than that. (laughs) It's not less than that. But together with our sin being forgiven and knowing that we can live forever, we can live differently now. Amen? That's the gospel of the kingdom. It affects us right now. So gospel lens living allows me to look at every aspect of my life and say, what does the the gospel teach me about this? What does Jesus' humility in going to the cross reveal to me about how I should handle this particular circumstance that I'm finding myself confronted with? How does the gospel inform my everyday choices What do I do about the sexual desires that I have? What does Jesus' purity in life reveal to me about how I can and should handle those desires? 
when I encounter relational problems in community, what does the truth that everyone is a sinner in need of God's grace, amen, which we discover in the gospel, what does that truth inform me about how I should treat others when I'm hurt? How should I treat people when I view them through gospel lenses? So that's sort of the question that we're we're really asking. Uh, 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters. That takes a long time to preach through verse by verse. And so rather than spend about 20 weeks, we're going to spend, Lord willing, five sessions. And that will involve, uh, if you're up for it, us all doing a bit more reading. And it'll involve the preacher reading out a little bit more text. But I think it's a good way to uh, challenge ourselves and cover a bit more ground. Uh, Throughout this book, The Apostle Paul tends to define a problem, respond to it through gospel lenses, and then clarify, because of the resurrection, how Christians have a new way of dealing with the issue. Define a problem, respond to it through gospel lenses, and then clarify (coughs) how we can actually live in a different way. So chapters 1 to 4, Paul reveals how gospel lenses uh, show us how we have a reason for unity. We have a reason for unity. Have you found, when you think about it, that one of the greatest reasons for unity in community, in society, in a church, is calamity? Think about it. It's what tends to bring people together. Summer a year ago, when the fires were ripping through Australia... There was an amazing sense of camaraderie and unity, but it tends to often take calamity. It takes disaster. Paul is contending in these first four chapters, if you understand the gospel, you'll see that the gospel actually presses people together. The gospel forges unity. We don't need disaster to bring us together We just need the gospel. So where did this church in Corinth come from? Paul travelled there on his first missionary journey. Um, Who has discovered, some of us are reading a lot of the Bible at the moment, with 6260. Have people realised that it's a good idea to get to a portion of the epistles, the letters, and put your finger there and flip over, or do a Google search, flip over to Acts and actually look at what Acts tells us about the backstory. People found that because that's actually really worth doing. And if you were to do that, you would head over to Acts 18 and uh, that tells us a whole lot about how the gospel came to this place called Corinth. Another thing I've been suggesting with the 6260 devotional audio podcast I've been doing is it's a good idea to familiarise yourself with the map of the first century, the map of the Mediterranean. And uh, rather than badger on about it forever, I thought, well, why don't we just spend some time looking at maps in, um, in our church service? So anyone travelled over that area of the world? number of us. So we're focusing in on this right section. Sorry for those who are listening to this sermon on podcast. The next two minutes are going to be pretty boring. Um, sorry about that. But if we were to focus in on this area down near Jerusalem... You've got Egypt. Um, obviously, Jesus went down there as a child. Alexandria. It's interesting to see where that is. We'll talk about that later. But that's where the action's happening. Jerusalem, the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. So that's the launching pad for the early church in Acts 
And Paul took the gospel north to what we would call Turkey, and it's typically called Asia Minor in the Bible. And if you focus in on that area of Turkey, uh, to the right, the little dip in the Mediterranean next to the one, that's where Tarsus is. So do you reckon Paul might have known a little bit about this area? This is where he came from, Saul of Tarsus. So number one is a sort of where he met Timothy, and Timothy gets saved. And number two, across that region are the churches of Galatia. And number three, and a bit to the left, is Bithynia. And it says in Acts 16, I've got a little uh, arrow there, that it's a very interesting little verse. They wanted to go, kept going north. And to me, it makes sense. He's probably thinking, well, we're going to go bottom to top of Asia Minor. But it says the Holy Spirit prevented them from heading to Bithynia, but rather headed west. Where are you heading if you're heading west? To Greece, Macedonia. And so he heads across. And if you've been in the area, it's not too far from Gallipoli, Chanakale, across that uh, water um, stretch over to this picture that shows you some of the spots. He went to Philippi. Anyone remember why the Spirit said, don't go up there to Bithynia, but head across to Philippi? We don't know exactly, but there was a very wealthy woman called Lydia, who was a merchant with fine purple cloth. And I think God is probably financing the mission. Uh, don't go up there, head across here, I've got work for you to do. Philippi, Thessalonica, you can remember some of the names of the letters. Down the bottom through parts of Greece to Athens, Acts 17, and then across to Corinth. So the next shot shows where our letter is being written to, the church who meets at Corinth and in Corinth. Paul planted this church, spent one and a half years establishing it, and then went back sort of across the water to near Izmir there, went to Ephesus, and then all the way back to Jerusalem. And he found, as he went back to Turkey, Asia Minor, he discovered that the Corinthian church had gone awry. There were some problems there that were, were causing him grief. So he writes his letter. He starts in chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I reckon that would have been pretty cool as a church planter to write back to a church you'd planted and said, to the church of God in Corinth. There was no church in Corinth until the church planter, Paul, went there, told them, proclaimed the good news that Jesus had lived, died, risen again for their sin. And there was this church that had begun there. Um, and Paul continues to revel in the development of this young church in verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of, this, of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. This is a dynamic 
spiritually gifted church. He says they don't lack any spiritual gift. And yet that's about where the compliments end. And it just reminds us spiritual gifts are wonderful, but without love, without character and virtue and, and the, the leading of the Spirit, <coughs> excuse me, they're no good. They're not so helpful. Um, they're not good enough. Paul then moves into a description of the first problem he needs to address, disunity. This is his big first problem. Disunity. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. As Tony read for us, one of you says, I follow Paul, another follow, I follow Paul, Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Well, a few weeks ago, we were in the Who is God series, and we looked at how human beings love to create us and them divides. They love to get tribal. And that's okay, you know, we've got to have different footy teams to support and tennis players and all the rest. It's, it's not such a bad thing, but in the church, tribalism can ruin Christian community. Yes, it really can. And the Corinthians, in a very short period of time, have become divided. They are following different leaders and it's harming their sense of community because of a lack of unity. So Paul doesn't mess around. Verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were, were you baptised in the name of Paul? Paul is basically saying, Corinthians, where are your gospel lenses? Put your gospel lenses back on. This is all about Christ. It's not about following the latest celebrity pastor leader you happen to love. Some are following Cephas, which is Peter. Some Apollos and some Paul, and they're arguing over who is the best. It's actually very interesting to check out who Apollos is. So if you head back to Acts 18, verse 24, you see this. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, you remember Alexandria, the top of Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour. Now, if you look in history about Alexandria, back in the day, there's a good chance. I'm reading into it a little bit, but not too much. There's a good chance Apollos is a hipster with a PhD. Is there a learned bunch there? He's suave, he's charismatic, he's, intellect, he's intelligent, intellectual, he's eloquent. And he has made a real impression on the Corinthian yuppies. Okay, Apollos, he, he's a suave brother. Paul says this, Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. If you travel to Athens, you are struck by the intelligence of that city. Now, Corinth is just up the road. There are the ruins to the Stoic philosophers. If you stand on Athens, the mountain of Mars Hill, near the big temple in the middle, and you look out and the Stoic philosophers and the Epicurean philosophers, I mean, it's rich in deep thinking. Some of the greatest thinkers ever to live were a couple of hundred years ago, Aristotle, Plato, um, Socrates. So he's talking into people who get wisdom 
And uh, he says, where's the wise person? Context gospel lenses. Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? I know you understand philosophy, guys. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we, what do we do? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Can you see why I've decided to speak so, spend so much time reading this out? Them, them's preaching words. So don't hold back on the amens. This is, it's amazing stuff. You've got to get your pen out and get some highlighter into your, your Bibles. The Corinthians do. They seem like they're pretty image conscious as a crowd. And we find out later that they feel like the Apostle Paul just doesn't match them. Yeah, you know, he was the first bloke who preached the gospel to them. But, you know, when you've seen the, the glory of the eloquent Apollos, they say Paul didn't have much going for him the way he looked. He wasn't that powerful a speaker. And so he's, he's also a tent maker. He's a relatively poor. I mean, he's been homeless a lot of the time. We read in 2 Corinthians. So this is a guy, he has an amazing education, but he's given it up and he's become a fool for Christ. And this Corinthian church are looking at him going, yeah, I don't know if that's, you really cut it. You're not really one of the apostles. And so uh, this is what is loading him up for First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. This sense of angst. It's like, what are you, what, you reckon I'm not filled with the Spirit? Um, so that's, we get to that later on. But the gospel has always been foolishness to the world. Paul reminds them, our king, King Jesus, king of the universe, he became king by dying on a cross. God became a baby. Foolishness? Tick. God choosing a teenage girl to be the mother of his son? Foolish. Jesus honouring a widow's meagre offering? Who does that? Giving up everything to trust in a crucified saviour? It's apparent foolishness, but the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Have you ever felt like a fool following Jesus? Have you ever felt like a fool? Have you ever felt like God has put you in a position where you can't stop it, but you've, you're shown to be weak in the eyes of people? And it's for a purpose. Because God has shown the weak things to shame the wise. And the gospel is for people who are willing to embrace being fools for Christ. I started reading a book by um, Craig Groeschel this week. Craig Groeschel's the pastor of um, Life Church, and he's the one. His church is the one who provide the online platform that many of us have been using, and some are watching now. Gives it to churches all over the world for free, and so we actually give money in our budget towards Life Church because they do this amazing thing. Always cost them money, but they do it for free. Uh, so anyway, it's really interesting. Uh, Craig Groeschel is about my age. Um, when he was early twenties. Um, and before that, he didn't do very well at school. He was colorblind, and that sort of set him up for making a lot of um, embarrassing choices. 
And uh, anyway, he feels called to go to ministry. So he's 23 years old, he's married, and he's applied to the ordination group of his denomination so that he could become a reverend. He's got to preach a sermon and go before them, the committee for the ministry, which is what Ben's actually doing in the Baptist denomination. And so you're waiting to, to have them stamp you and go, we approve. So he does that, and he's waiting, and they come back to him and they say, Craig, we don't think as a group you are pastor material. In fact, we think it would be foolish for you to pursue a vocational call in this way. So Craig goes back to his wife and uh, he's pretty dejected. And he's like, what am I doing? I am a fool. And then God speaks into his heart, not verbally, but into his heart and says, Craig, I have called you to be a uniquely different pastor. And he goes on in the next 28 years, by God's grace, to lead one of the largest churches the world has ever seen. Certainly the most innovative church the world has ever seen. Now, I I mentioned Craig Groeschel not to say our, our, our aim is to be a big church. We just need to be servants who are fools for Christ. That's our calling. In chapter 2, Paul writes, So it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Christian churches ever since the first century have been struggling with issues of disunity. Some of us were here in the 80s when this church, as Hornsby Baptist, struggled with disunity. The church I grew up in struggled for 20 years with disunity. I've seen it in a church that I've been a pastor at for a season, and It's awful. And you know what? I think it's the greatest risk that northern life faces. What we are dealing with here in the first four chapters. We're doing a business continuity plan with our deacons at the moment. And we talked about this two weeks ago. What could pull apart this business, this ministry? Disunity. Disunity is a, a really big issue. Paul says this, the best way to remain united is to remember we're all fools. I'm a fool, and if you follow Jesus, you're a fool. In the world's eyes, you're a fool. And let's face it, you are a fool. If you believe that a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago can set you free from all your sin and he can do it in a moment, you're a fool. Just try being the preacher at Easter when the place is full with your friends and family who don't know Jesus. And I've got to stand up, or whoever, and say... A man died 2,000 years ago, died in a lonely place, and that's going to set you free from sin and change you like that in an instant and transform you. Who would believe that? But he does. The gospel is foolishness. He changes us from the inside out. If you believe that by faith... Faith, what is faith other than some sort of invisible allegiance of the heart and mind to a person who is said to be God and man 
together, whose name is Jesus. By faith, you believe that he is not only at the right hand of God right now ruling the universe, but the Bible says that this one we put our faith in breathed the universe into existence. Foolish. Come on. Give me something that's worth believing. That's what the atheist says. You're a fool if you're going to believe that you're going to live forever and ever and ever with no more sin and no more pain. And you will reign with Christ in the new creation with a new resurrected body on a new resurrected earth. And God, who is all-powerful, cares all-knowingly about us, knows the hairs on our head, loves us unconditionally. This is the gospel. By faith that we can know God, but you must become a fool in the world's eyes. And in this we find solidarity as the church. We are fools and yet we are wise. Paul says, don't lose the lens of the gospel. Through which we see that fool equals wise in the economy of God. We are fools for Christ and in this we are united. We have a reason for unity because of the gospel. Amen. That's our reason. And then Paul spends the rest of chapter 2 explaining right, that none of what I just said will make any sense to you out there now if you're a mere human. Look up chapter 3 verse 3. It's cheeky. Mere human. Who's he calling a mere human? Paul says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, which is the essential part of the gospel that changes us, you're a mere human, and with mere human thinking, you can't understand what he just said. And this is what he says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. Cannot understand them because they are discerning, discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to understand the ways of the kingdom. And with the mind of Christ, we have unity. We belong to one another as fools for Christ. To labor the point, do you see every community will eventually find a reason to divide? You, it may, it, it, I've seen it happen in a church and I actually have like an almost PTSD type vibe in me. When I see the church coming with all these new people, I'm like, who's bringing the disunity? Honestly, I have, to, I have to sort of get over that. I get over that and sort of, no, no, love the person, respect the person. Love conquers this stuff. Um, I'm not looking at that in, every time I meet you. So. <laughs> Only some of you. <laughs> But it's the truth, we have to keep praying. What would it take for us? Because people sin, we reveal our imperfection and we reveal our imperfection in community. And it hurts people. And it's hard to deal with the pain if you don't do it with gospel lenses. So we have this reason for unity and it's the gospel and it's because we're a bunch of fools together in Christ. Chapter 3, Paul explains that we all play a different role in seeing God's kingdom come. Paul had planted the church originally, verse 6. Let me read from chapter 3, verse 6. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. 
The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. That's the key now for this second point, which is just short. We work together with one purpose. We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. There's a transition between field and building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. So we're in this gospel project, building the kingdom together. But he's been working the metaphor of seed sown, watering, vegetation, plants, harvest. And did you notice he'd shifted to building, shifted to foundations, so this is the second metaphor that we get another reason for being united. We're all going to be tested. Look around the room. It's a fellow testee. You're going to be tested. Look at verse 11. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones... Wood, hay or straw, either work, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. There's a day coming. It will be revealed with fire, the work of our life. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Our lives matter. What we do with each day, with the decade that's in front of us, it, it matters. We will be tested individually, but we're in this thing together, aren't we? There's, that's a really profound thought. We're tested individually, but we're in it to achieve the best together. Leanne and I, our eldest son, Josiah, is in Melbourne. He's studying medicine. Uh, so he's working really hard. So this great dream to become a doctor. Hopefully he becomes, Lord willing, becomes a doctor at the end of the year. Um, in the first year, they got there, travelled down to Melbourne, they get the cohort together, and the head of the medical school says, we're in this together. I want you to work with one another. Because you, you together will be tested. There are tests to pass. But you're going to go out to be doctors together. So try to get a hold of this sense of solidarity, of a sense of corporate effort and, and, and achieving something together that's good. I think that's a bit like church, a bit like life, a bit like faith. We're in this life together. It's not a competition, though it feels like it is in a capitalistic society. It's actually not meant to be a competition. But there is individual accountability in life, but the life lived is within a communal context. Amen? There's individual accountability but the life that gets tested is lived together. And we play a role in body life in making that life the best we can be. Now, don't get me wrong. We are saved by grace through faith. We are forgiven solely because of what Christ has achieved on the cross and in the resurrection. But the proof of salvation, the proof of regeneration is in a changed life. And it seems multiple places in the Bible says we will be tested. We're in it together. Gospel Lens Living gives us a reason to unite. We are all fools for Christ. And secondly, we are accountable for the fruit of our lives. I think that's a hard one to get your head around. Does it really matter? The church you're in? Do the people you're sitting next to, do they really matter? Or, or 
Amen. <coughs> but I think that's a reframing to go, for me to achieve the best, do I need you guys? I think you do. Because a divided church is a win for Satan. Honestly. Think about, if you know Baptist stuff, think of us and head west. Think of some churches that have gone really big and influential and impacting. It happens. Division kills movement forward. We need each other. That's what I'm laboring. We need each other. We're accountable for our lives, and I'll get a better, I will see more costly stones and silver and gold produced when I can work with people who are in unity in, in the gospel. Let me finish in 1 Corinthians 4. We're not doing too bad. Verse 10. This is a sobering reminder of the challenges of doing what we just talked about. So we're in it together. Yeah, let's take the hill. Whew. Not going to be easy. Paul says, We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, us apostles, but you are strong. You're honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, taking life seriously following Jesus, being fools for Christ, is it we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. May God grant us wisdom to understand what that means for us. At least it means it won't be painless, the journey. There are some challenges that we will come up against. So what has Paul covered as we come to finish? Division in the church. Big problem. Look at it through the lens of the gospel. What do we need to remember to stay together? There's only one king and lord and saviour and his name is Jesus. Come to think of it, we learned that in Sunday school. And that's what the person, the godly old woman that's about to die, your great-grandmother, she'll say that. Love Jesus. Lift him up. Because in that is wisdom. There's one king, one Lord, one Savior. His name is Jesus. We don't follow celebrity. We follow Christ. And we follow Christ together. He's our reason for unity. And this may seem foolish. In fact, it certainly will in the, the eyes of the world. But we are fools for Christ. We're fools for Christ together. He is our reason for unity. And one day we will give an account for what we've done with our lives. May we produce together gold, silver and costly stones with our lives by living Gospel-centric, other-person-focused, love-compelled, grace-saturated, freedom-encountering lives together. Jesus is our reason for unity. So what is God's Spirit saying to you today if we put up this little list? Am I someone the devil could 
earmark for later to go, yeah, I reckon I could work through that person to bring about this unity. I don't want to be that person. So I've got to think, what, what's the Lord saying to prepare me so I'm not that person? How are you being challenged right now in this season of life about being a fool for Christ? I'm confident someone is here today who that just resonates in your heart. And what about personal accountability for your life's work? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the one who knows what we need. Life's all about you. Our faith is built up by your words. I thank you that you call us and you equip us. And you bring the right people around to work with us. And you give us opportunities to serve. Lord, may we have eyes to see what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.